This is A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends, a podcast ministry of Somebody Cares America, being a tangible expression of Christ in a hurting world. It's great to have Jody Caracosta, the Vice President of Somebody Cares America and Somebody Cares International, back today. She'll be sharing on this podcast about influencing a generation by loving God above all else. I think you'll agree this is a powerful and important message today. Thanks, Doug, for having me back. You know, one of the saddest verses in the Bible to me is found in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It's after the Israelites fought for and received their inheritance in the promised land. And the Bible says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. If you think about it, it's eerily like society today. We have a generation in our nation who does not know the Lord or the work he's done for us. I'm not talking about an age category, but large portions of the people living in our nation today. Some may even give lip service to God, but they do not know him. They do not know what he's done for us. This generation desperately needs Jesus. Many of us have been yearning to see revival in our time, and we're beginning to see hopeful glimpses that God is up to something. But are we as a church ready to steward a move of God in this generation? Do we have the humility, integrity, and commitment to obedience required to lead people to Jesus and help them be followers of Him? Can we show them how to walk in the way of righteousness so we grow up together in maturity? As I've pondered this, I'm reminded of the Apostles Paul the Apostle Paul's direction to the saints in Corinth when he told them to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. That's found in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. In my now 40-plus years of following Christ, I have come to appreciate the value of examining myself, like Paul directed, to see if there's any wicked or offensive way in me. Knowing our hearts are deceitful, we can only truly do this by inviting the Holy Spirit to reveal those wicked ways in us. Following the example of King David in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, when he says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. While we should daily consider our actions and attitudes to make sure they're in keeping with godliness, I have found it helpful to periodically make a deeper inspection of my life. Over the past few decades, we've seen devastating scandals and theological compromises throughout the body of Christ that have clearly been detrimental to the gospel message in our day. It's because of this that, like Jude wrote in chapter 1, verse 3, I felt compelled to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. The Lord often speaks to and challenges me through the tragedies and triumphs of biblical characters. We all have our favorites, ones that encourage us to fight the good fight, stand firm in our faith, like those those like uh, Joshua and Joseph, David, and Esther. They each fell short in some way, as we all do, but they humbled themselves before God, clinging to His promises, and God used them mightily in their generation. But those are not the tales we'll consider now. Instead, I want us to reflect on some lesser talked about figures in the Bible. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. First, let's consider Cain. The fourth chapter of Genesis gives us a glimpse of what life was like outside the Garden of Eden. 
the Lord still conversed with at least some of mankind. They still felt his favor or pleasure, and they were still able to enjoy his presence. Cain experienced all of these things in his relationship with the Lord. He knew the Lord enough to know God was not pleased with him or his offering, and that Abel had God's favor. He heard the Lord's encouragement to do right and to rule over sin. Cain knew God, and astonishingly, he still chose the way of wickedness. 1 John 3, verse 12 tells us, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brother's actions were righteous. On the surface, Cain's first transgression didn't seem that terrible. He did not bring his best as an offering to the Lord. God, in his love and compassion, confronted Cain and warned him that sin was crouching at his door. Instead of repenting for his greed or sloth or lukewarmness toward God, Cain killed his brother, who was living in right relationship with the Lord. When confronted by God again about Abel's murder, Cain did not even express remorse. There was no, I'm sorry, Lord. He was only concerned that his punishment was too much. Cain had walked with God intimately, yet still he rejected the Lord's loving correction. Instead of repenting, he lashed out at Abel, who served as a standard of righteousness in his life in an effort to quiet his own conscience. Even in his punishment, he was more concerned with his own comfort than with repentance. We see this happening a lot in our culture today. The Bible tells us that in the last days, people will love all sorts of sin and pleasure more than they love God, even those among the people of God. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5 says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For many will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Paul was not referring to unbelievers in this letter, but those who say they're Christians. Unfortunately, we are seeing false doctrine masquerading as truth more and more, and Christians, even Christian leaders, excuse their sin under the guise of grace. Unbelievers will never come to know Christ when we act more like the world than we do like Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we must learn to distinguish between good and evil by the constant application of God's word and his teaching on righteousness in our lives. That's found in Hebrews 5 and into Hebrews 6. But in 1 Peter, the apostle also encourages us to turn from evil and do good, not fearing the threats against us, but instead in our hearts to revere Christ as Lord. In summary, we must love God more than our own reputation or the sinfulness and pleasures of this world. Now let's look at Balaam. Balaam was a well-known prophet in ancient Mesopotamia. He lived in Pethor near the Euphrates River, but his reputation spread at least as far as Moab, some 400 miles away. Considering a journey between the two would take three to four weeks in those days, and word of mouth by travelers was the primary way news spread, one can assume he was pretty highly respected. When Balak, king of Moab, saw how Israel had defeated his fierce neighbors, the Amorites, he was afraid. He called on Balaam to save his country through witchcraft. 
Even though Balaam was not an Israelite, he still knew God. Numbers 22 and 23 tell us about several encounters that Balaam had with the Lord. It's pretty clear that these were not Balaam's first conversations with God. In fact, in Numbers 22, verse 18, when he's talking to emissaries from Balak, Balaam even claims that the Lord is his God when he says, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord, my God. When Balak's men, who brought the standard fee for divination, first asked Balaam to curse the children of Israel, he was quick to obey the Lord by sending them away. Then a second honorage arrived with promises of a handsome reward. Balaam's love of money caused his resolve to waver. He went back to the Lord to see if God would change his mind. This time, God allowed Balaam to go to Moab with strict instructions to follow God's lead in everything he did. Knowing what was in Balaam's heart, God sent an angel to confront him on the journey to make sure he only said what God directed. And technically, that is what Balaam did. Instead of pronouncing a curse on the Israelites, he blessed them three times. Balak was going to send him home with no reward, but Balaam's heart was greedy. Revelation 2.14 tells us what happened next. Balaam taught Balak how to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Balaam reluctantly blessed Israel, then used his knowledge of the Lord to bring their destruction another way. As soon as Balaam left to go home, the Moabites sent women to seduce Israelite men, inviting them to sacrificial meals before their gods, and God's judgment fell on the Israelites quickly. Even though Balaam knew God had commanded blessing on the Israelites, he twisted his knowledge of God's ways, devising a plan that would benefit the Israelites' enemies and profit himself. His greed enticed the Israelites into idolatry, immorality, and ultimately led to God's judgment. If Balaam had simply been obedient, he could have walked in God's favor as a prophet of the Lord. He could have been someone like Job. Instead, he helped the idolatrous Moabites lay a trap for the Israelites, all for money. In, his, in the end, his wealth was only for a season. Joshua 13.22 tells us that he was killed by the Israelites in battle when they took the promised land. The lure of wealth is still alive and well today. Beware if you or someone you know starts justifying compromise or devising questionable plans to increase their own bank account. Stay clear of Christian leaders who merchandise the gospel or twist doctrine for personal gain. Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy, Timothy 6 verses 6 through 10, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul also says godliness with contentment is great gain. This does not mean that wealth in and of itself is evil. It can be used for great good. God does greatly bless some of his people financially, and when he does, it is for his purposes. Churches and ministries need to pay their staff fairly and their bills on time, and we are called to support the work of the ministry. But sacrificing integrity or straying from the way of righteousness to pursue money will eventually lead to destruction. We must love God more than the promise of wealth and prosperity. Finally, let's talk about Korah. Korah was a Levite and first cousin to Moses and Aaron. Like them, he had suffered under Pharaoh's cruel slavery. 
He saw God's power on display as Egypt was decimated by the plagues. He experienced the Israelite exodus from Egypt and walked through the Red Sea on dry ground and ate manna and quail God provided and drank water from the rock. He followed the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. He was there when all Israel trembled before God's thunder at Mount Sinai. He saw the tablets Moses brought down from the mountain and heard the law God had given. As a Levite, Korah and his clan were chosen by the Lord to guard the entrance to the tabernacle of the Lord and help minister to the community. So he knew some of the weight of responsibility that Moses and Aaron experienced. But when the Israelites first arrived on the edge of Canaan and believed the spies' report that they were as grasshoppers before the people of the land, Korah joined in the grumbling publicly. Because of their unbelief, God banished that entire generation from their inheritance and sent them back into the wilderness. Moses and Aaron had to break the bad news to the people, which did not go over well. Some of the people rebelled further and tried to fight their way into Canaan anyway, and they were soundly defeated. Moses and Aaron, at God's command, then began preparing the younger generation for their eventual entry into the promised land by teaching them the required offerings and the law and all of the other issues that they needed. And life in the wilderness resumed. Because he was close to Moses and Aaron, Korah knew their flaws and their struggles. He also saw their obedience in the face of incredible challenges, and he heard how Moses intervened with God on behalf of the people numerous times. In spite of all of that, Korah came to the conclusion that Moses and Aaron had gone too far in their leadership. Instead of supporting them, he took the side of the grumblers and instigated a rebellion. He openly challenged Moses and Aaron, arguing that the whole assembly was holy and God lived in the midst of them all. Even though he had just seen the disastrous outcome of rebellion against God, Korah believed he would be a better leader than Moses and Aaron. Korah took his rebellion to the very entrance of the tabernacle, the place he and his clan were supposed to guard. His rebellion cost his own life as well as the lives of almost 15,000 others who followed him. Korah held a highly esteemed position, but that was not enough for him. He despised his post and wanted more authority. He undermined Moses and Aaron among the people, sowing discontent. He wanted a bigger leadership position, but God said no and destroyed him along with all his followers. Now, lest we think that men are the only ones who have rebellious hearts, let us be reminded that of Miriam's rebellion. Miriam, Moses' older sister, began to get puffed up before because the Lord had given her prophecies. She came to her brother Aaron and started grumbling against Moses privately because they heard from the Lord too. And Moses was married, was married to a Canaanite woman. In Numbers 12, verse 4, suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. God sternly rebuked Miriam and Aaron for their rebellious hearts and punished Miriam with, with leprosy. Unlike Korah, though, Miriam and Aaron quickly humbled themselves before the Lord, and God restored them to their places of service. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7 remind us that promotion does not come from the East or the West, but only from God. How many times have churches split or ministries been undercut or godly leaders been maligned because someone felt their gifting and their anointing should take precedence right now. In, even in the secular marketplace and government, God is the one who places people in positions of power and leadership. It's good and right to give appropriate counsel and hold others accountable 
to lead with integrity, but it's not okay to try to usurp their authority just because you want the position or think it's time you have it. The sons of Korah apparently learned a valuable lesson through the demise of their ancestor. Psalm 84, which was written by the sons of Korah, declares in verses 10 and 11, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord is my son and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. As followers of Christ, we should serve with joy wherever God places us. Moses was a shepherd in the desert for 40 years before God made him a leader. David had a similar journey. They learned humility, contentment, and obedience in those times. Daniel 2 verse 21 explains that God changes times and seasons. He disposes kings and raises up others. No matter how skilled or anointed we think we are, it's God who determines if, where, and when we, His servants, step into positions of leadership. Trust Him to fulfill His word about your future. It's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to defame someone or cause division by by vying for prominence or an exalted title. We must love God more than position or power. Cain, Balaam, and Korah each had opportunity to have a tremendous godly influence in their generation. But instead of doing things God's way, they followed the way of the wicked, which led to their demise. In Psalm 1, David lays out the clear choice before us. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted in springs of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. As followers of Jesus, we must reject all all forms of wickedness, carnality, greed, and deceit. To inherit the land God has promised us, to influence this generation with the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, We have to walk in the way of righteousness, humility, honesty, obedience, honor. They're all hallmarks of the righteous. God taught his disciples to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul and with all our mind. It seems like a simple message, but apart from the spirit, it's hard to set aside our carnal desires for his higher purposes to take up our cross and follow him, especially when times get tough. If we follow the way of the wicked, our lives may very well end up as a warning like Cain, Balaam, or Korah. But if we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and follow the way of the righteous, our legacy and our influence can be like Joseph, David, Esther, and others who found favor with God. This is what our generation needs, those who will truly die to self and live for Christ. I encourage you to love the Lord above all else. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805 
422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.